Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. And that is me, Leo Flowers. How are how are you breathing right now? Are your, are your shoulders relaxed? What about your face? I always get a little furrow between my eyes. Uh, I, I'm never quite, every time I think I'm relaxed, uh, I always notice there's always a, just a slight bit of tension between my eyes. And, and then when I am really relaxed, ah, that, that's the signal that I am 100% in the present moment. Uh, I hope that you feel connected. You can uh, feel your feet on the ground. You are sending energy into your uh, arms, into your feet, and your legs. Um, I hope that you, that you took some time to zoom out. You know, we spend a lot of time in front of our cell phones and iPads, and uh, we don't take time to ca- capture those panoramic visions, those long, distant gazes into the universe. Uh, that's why sunsets and sunrises are so beautiful and engrossing and magnificent to us. Uh, if you have access to a rooftop, it's, you find that you're immediately uh, soothed. I can't even say, I can't say soothed, but uh, I, ho- I hope you're eating well, moving well, and healthy. That's 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 the number one thing right now is just staying healthy and staying with us. Uh, we have a great episode for you today. We have Lindsay Anderson on today's episode, and we talk about a lot of stuff today. Uh, we talk about her managing bipolar 2 and PTSD and generalized anxiety disorder. So we define bipolar 1 versus bipolar 2. We discuss how she was diagnosed with dysthymia, which is a type of depression, when she was 12. And uh, uh, there's so much talk about depression. Uh, there's not a lot of talk about dysthymia. So we talk about what that is because uh, for a lot of us, we think that we're struggling with depression when really it's dysthymia. Uh, even Abraham Lincoln, they, some people call it melancholy, uh, but it's, it's the same concept. So. Uh, you, you may find out that uh, you've been misdiagnosed with this episode. She talks about how she attempted uh, twice. And we don't, obviously, we don't go into detail about how she attempted, but we do talk about the treatment that she received, how she, how she hospitalized herself. So for some of you who are uh, afraid of hospitalizing yourself, uh, she talks about what that process was and the fact that she's still here. Uh, shows you the effectiveness of it. And obviously, it depends on what hospital you go to. And as a bonus, we also talk about how she paid for it. She hospitalized herself for 30 days, and uh, it was $28,000. How did she pay for that? So uh, we're going to get into that because that's going to be of value to you. A lot of people aren't seeking help because they think they can't afford it, and she's going to show you how she uh, paid off that $28,000, and it's something that most of you, uh, the listeners, can do, if not all of you, Uh, but you you all have access to this in some way. So uh, listen for that, and just how to pay for mental health treatment in general if you 
don't have insurance. So we're going to get into that. Uh, we talk about how how important it is to share your story because that reduces the stigma of what you're feeling. The more people who share their stories, including you, then the more the easier it becomes for other people to share their story. So sometimes what helps us get better is to not just think about ourselves and what we're going through, but to think about the next generation. Like, can you do something or what can you do today so it makes it easier for the next generation to cope with being bullied, to cope with their uh, mental illness, to cope with the stigma of having attempted or, uh, uh, you know, self-harming themselves. And, and, And she talks about her PTSD, uh, from being bullied uh, as a kid, and uh, but how she finally got help. And what's beautiful is, if you know me, you know I want to live to be a hundred. That's that's my goal right there. Um, and she talks about how she got to meet her great grandparents. A lot of people don't even get to meet their grandparents. She was her great grandparents were a lot alive long enough for her to meet them, and uh, and. And one lived to be 101. 100. So I asked her what the key was, what she thought was the key to the grandparents living into their 90s and 100s. And then she shares that with us for those of you who want to live a nice, long, healthy life. Because they lived a, a healthy life. They, did, they, did, they weren't just 100 in, uh, you know, uh, in an infirmary. They, they were strong and robust people. And then, of course, we talk about our favorite books and uh, and all, so many other goodies that I'm sure you're going to enjoy. And and how to, she has a website, a little bit about uh, Lindsay Anderson, uh, is that she is a mental illness advocate and the creator of ConsciouslyCoping.com. So in this episode, we talk about how she, what her coping strategies are when uh, her to, to regulate her mood so that her Bipolar 2 doesn't consume her. Um, What happened was during a difficult time in her life in 2015, she decided to search for black mentally ill peers via YouTube and was disheartened to find one African-American person. That experience would change her life as she chose to start a YouTube channel and blog to share her personal stories on navigating America as a mentally ill black woman. Uh, Lindsay is a past member of NAMI and DBSA and has been featured on For Harriet, No More Martyrs, and Nielsen Holdings, LLC. Currently, Lindsay is a student studying biology with a minor in applied mathematics and aims to become a postdoctoral research scientist in the field of computational neuroscience. Welcome to the episode, ladies and gentlemen, Lindsay Anderson. And of course, if you have not yet, go check out thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching with yours truly. Uh, a lot of us are struggling with transitions, traumas, tragedies, and I want to share with you my personal coping skills and my self-soothing techniques uh, that I use that can help move you from A to B. Um, go to thrivewithleo.com work with yours truly let's get to tomorrow together and with that said let's hop into the episode so i appreciate you joining me where are you out of where do you where are you at Lindsay? 
I am in Savannah, Georgia on the East Coast. Oh, wow. So you got the AC fan, bug repair. You got all the things. You got ice uh, on the, you got an ice pack. How? <laughs> well, well, no. <laughs> uh, you know, I always say, like, people in the South, we know, like, just stay home. <laughs> so we just stay home. Like, we go nowhere. Like, it's hot, it's muggy. Savannah is really humid. So the thing here is like it'll it'll get around about 96, but with the heat index is about 107. And then we have like sweltering sauna-like humidity, and that's the issue. And so we all just stay home. Nobody comes outside until like 10 o'clock at night. Yeah. Oh uh, no, nah, see, I can't do that. And 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 we were thinking about going out to Savannah, Georgia, uh, Savannah, Georgia, because we'd never been and heard how beautiful and you'd like you feel the history. Uh, but I like I don't know if I want to feel that history. You know, it might. <laughs> it, it's gorgeous. Like, it's I mean, it's beautiful. The oak trees are gorgeous. The water, the food is great. You know, a lot of history. We have a lot of connection with Charleston, South Carolina. Um, So we have a lot of, you know, history with, you know, the West African culture. So it's great, but I'm just telling you, wear a tank top and some shorts and some flip-flops and bring a whole bunch of water and ice. So, yeah. I, I, I appreciate it. I'm writing all of those down right now. <laughs> so, L- Lindsay Anderson, tell me about consciously coping. Like, what 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 is it and, and why did you create this? Um, yeah, so um, consciously coping is something that started out of a um, a revenge blog, I guess you can't call it. Uh, so at the uh, around about 2011, 2012, I was at the time I was married and I had just had my son. And so I had a lot of mental health issues going on. Right. And so. My ex-husband and I had a lot of friends that were, you know, they were his friends, but they were also my friends. My friends were kind of also his friends. And so we were really young. um, And of course, we would bit to our friends, you know, our frustrations with, you know, being married and being parents. Well, I had a lot of social media, you know, Facebook and Twitter and all that stuff. And I would bit. Now, I wouldn't per se say exactly who or what was going on, but of course, people would, you know, go back and tell my ex-husband, you know, hey, you know, Lindsay posted this. Is this about you? So I started a blog and it was called I'm Depressed, Get Over It. Um, And so it was really a blog for me to prove like, hey, you know, this is what I have going on. Like nobody understands it. I have, you know, all of these mental health issues. Nobody gets it. I want my story to be told. So that point of view, it was great at first. Um, I had a few people that kind of like, oh, this is so good. I understand you. As I grew as a person, I kind of was like, "Uh, this is not something I should be doing. Um, And so in 2015, I was having a, I was really struggling. Um, At that time, my ex-husband and I, got divorced. So we were separated and then actually got divorced. So it really hit me like a ton of bricks. And so I went on YouTube one night, I was really upset and I just searched black woman with a mental illness and I found one person. Um, And that really made me upset because I felt like I wasn't the only person that was black 
and that was a woman that had a mental illness. And so that really bothered me. And so I said, you know what? I'm going to start a YouTube channel. So I started this YouTube channel. Of course, I fall into this like idea of, oh, you know, I need to do makeup and clothes and, get, you know, get sponsorships. And that fell off. And I was like, you know what? I just want to talk. So I, I started this thing called Transparency Thursday. Every Thursday, I would get on and talk about a tub- subject specifically for mental health. Um, and so it began to grow. I mean, it just grew exponentially. I mean, just out of nowhere. I mean, I was getting DMs and like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. I've never heard of anybody talk so openly about their mental health issues. And so I just kept it going. And after I saw there was a need, I decided that I didn't just want to do a blog or just a YouTube channel. I wanted to take it a step further. You know, I wanted to do advocacy work. I wanted to go into the community. I wanted to make films. I wanted to do content creation. Uh, And so, yeah, I start, I was in the car taking my son to school and I was like, what can the name be? Like, it can't be, you know, this anymore. I I need something new. Um, And I was like, what do I do every day? And I'm like, what is it something that we do consciously? And I'm like, I consciously, you know, I'm like rambling off stuff. And all of a sudden it hit me. I'm like, I'm always trying to consciously cope and consciously coping started. And then it was just a YouTube channel. And now it is a blog. It is a content creation. Um, I do a lot of advocacy work uh, right now, trying to work on some reform. Um, and so really in, in, in its entirety, it is a social media platform that is created and curated specifically for Black Americans navigating the mental health community in America. Um, and so it is a place for people who have mental illnesses to come and thus share their experience. Um, sharing our stories have power. Um, and I believe that the more we share stories, of course, we can diminish stigma. But let, besides stigma, we can create a community. Um, I feel as African-American people, our whole history is based upon how we come together as a familial, communal base, like just society. Um, and that's really important. And that's what got our grandmamas through, right? And our moms and our dads. And so I wanted to create that kind of feeling of people who have mental health conditions or illnesses to come together and share these stories and talk about things that how we cope, you know, how do we get through this? Like, what do I do? I I don't have all the answers. Can you help me, sister, brother, cousin, friend, internet cousin? Um, And so, yeah, it's just grown and uh, I continue to do the work and trying to just implement some new things now and take it to a different level. And now I'm trying to like partner with other organizations um, to really get the word out that our stories have power and we have to tell, we have to hear our own stories. Uh, When you don't know your own story, you start to believe that things that go on in your life, you deserve it. Um, And so I think it's really important to just kind of keep that conversation going. So that's the long, short version of of, uh, what Consciously COVID is and kind of why I started it. I appreciate you sharing that with us. Uh, and when you re- talk about mental illness, uh, you're talking about your diagnosis of bipolar 2, PTSD, and generalized anxiety disorder. But it, that wasn't your initial diagnosis, correct? Right. Um, so I've actually been um, managing and navigating through the mental health community since the age of 12. Um, and so I was diagnosed at the age of 12 with dysthymia. Um, and so dysthymia is a is inside of the depression um, 
uh, inside of depression as far as like, um, excuse me, major depressive disorder. Now, the difference with major depressive disorder and dysthymia is major depressive um, disorder is something that it it is a more intense depressive low mood, right? So they like people who have like major depression will have a really intense, really deep, um, really heavy depressive episode. And it, they may experience it like once, maybe every two to five years. However, people with dysthymia are your people who function. So those are the people who kind of go through life every day, always kind of have that low melancholy mood, kind of have that low depressive, you know, not really intense enough to go to a mental health facility. However, they still have that low mood. They can go to work, but then they may go home and curl up on the bed, you know, can't can't take a shower, can't wash clothes, can't, you know, interact with family, don't want to watch TV. Um, and so that's what I was diagnosed with. Um, so I spent, you know, up until about the age of oh my gosh, 27, 28, thinking that I just had depression. And so I um, was on every medication, anything you can think of. I mean, I've taken Zoloft, Prozac, I've had Wellbutrin, I mean, the Paxil, I mean, I've done it all and nothing was working. I mean, I I could like, I would get on this medication and I kept feeling worse. Um, And so I went to a mental health facility, a behavioral center, uh, and the psychiatrist there said, I really think that you have bipolar disorder. He said, however, I haven't seen you long enough, so I cannot give you this diagnosis without you being here or seeing someone on a consistent basis. Um, He said, but I really want you to to go to therapy um, and get your therapist to refer you to a psychiatrist so we can get you accurately diagnosed. It would be years (laughs) before I did that. Um, And so more recently, about three, four years ago, I was correctly, accurately diagnosed with bipolar disorder type two. Um, I've always had PTSD, always had the generalized anxiety disorder. Those two disorders I've had since the age of 12. So uh, just getting that bipolar disorder correctly and accurately did wonders. I mean, I saw just the treatment plan and, you know, the medication, everything just started to come together. And I actually started to feel better and and get some of that healing done. What happened when you were 12 to cause PTSD? Um, So 12, you know, that's, you go to middle school. (laughs) Um, And I, went to a predominantly, well, I went to a mixed elementary school. I'll say that. Um, However, I was in what was then known as the magnet program. So that's, you know, like the smart kids with the great grades who get honor roll, pretty much a lot of kids with a lot of anxiety. Um, And so I was in that program. And of course I was like maybe one of three black students. Uh, So it was a different type of, you know, just experience that I had until I got to middle school. Well, the middle school I decided to go to was total, total cultural shock. Um, and I just, it was, it was too much. 
I just couldn't relate to the students. I didn't, you know, I, I at the time I was staying with my grandparents um, and they were, I guess at the time you could say they were more affluent. Um, they lived in a predominantly white neighborhood. They had nice cars. They, you know, went on trips. They had multiple properties. So, you know, it was just a different type of lifestyle. And going to this school and, you know, interacting with these students who, you know, we're, kids are going to be kids. And so, immediately I was bullied. Um, everything from my hair, my looks, the way I talked, the way I walked, what I wore. Um, and so it started out as just simply bullying, you know, being different, you know, kids being kids. And it turned into harassment. It turned into violence. It turned into people threatening to fight me and jump me and give me your money and starting rumors. You know, it just kind of escalated. And I did not know how to say, hey, you know, this is what I'm experiencing. How, like, what, what do I do? What I did was, let me try to fix it. Let me try to blend in. Let me get my hair done like everybody else. Let me wear the same type of shoes and clothes and let me behave differently. Let me change my vernacular. Um, And it never worked. And so the more I, you know, try to be like everyone else, the worst it kind of, like I would kind of always fall short. Um, and so, yeah, I became really depressed. Um, I really kind of went in um, and my behavior really did change. I was a very outgoing child. I loved arts. I loved to draw arts and crafts. I loved to draw and do all these amazing things. Um, and slowly but surely I started to recuse. I started to kind of go within. Um, and my best friend, she tra- actually transferred to my middle school with me. And that was in the seventh. By this time, I was in the seventh grade. And, you know, she she was like, something's wrong. And I commend her even to this day. We're still really good friends. She went to the nurse and said, hey, you know, my friend Lindsay, I don't know what's wrong with her. But like she's crying all the time. She has bruising she won't talk to me. She's always saying she doesn't want to be here anymore. I don't know what to do. Um, and thus kind of, you know, everybody kind of stepped in. Um, and so once everyone stepped in, that's kind of when it, it, you know, it was like, what's going on? And of course I was, you know, 12. I didn't want to, you know, I didn't want to share that information. I didn't want to talk about it. So I just kind of said, oh, I'm okay. I'm just a little down, but I'm okay. Um, and so I kind of wrote it off and played it off like I was all right uh, for a long time. Um, and so, yeah, that's and it just kind of manifested and just kind of grew into a bigger issue as I got older. All right. So, uh, first of all, I, I want to highlight the fact that your friend stepped in and helped you out. And I want to highlight that because so many people are struggling with something right now, whether it's a mental illness or, or, or even money, job loss, relationships. And we're trying to fix it ourselves. And as you stated, we can't do that. We, it, we are tribal people. We are bred in communities. And, and so sometimes uh, someone takes notice and helps us, and sometimes we have to ask for help. So for those anybody out there struggling, know that you can't get well alone. You need someone who will help you and, and maybe the people in your life and you've tried it before, uh, hasn't worked out, but keep working at it. You will find someone, uh, who can help you. Cause sometimes when we're depressed, we just think everybody, uh, is out to get us or, uh, uh, won't help us, but there's always someone 
who is willing, ready, and able. Um, my other question was, you said you live with your grandparents, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, what, why did you, uh, how come, why didn't you live with your parents? Why'd you have to go to your grandparents? Yeah. So, um, my mom and dad were really young <laughs> when they had me. Uh, my mom met my dad actually in college. Um, and at the age of 20, my mom was like, I want to have a baby. And my dad was like, uh, we're like 20 years old. <laughs> and she was like, nope, like, that's what I want to do. And so thus, you know, she got pregnant. They were in college and both, well, my mom, you know, of course, once she actually had me, uh, got out of college for a brief stint, uh, and she worked. And so my grandmother was like, well, we can help you. You know, like we, you know, don't stress yourself out, like, you know, work, do what you need to do. We will take the baby. Um, and so I went, I moved back to Savannah at the age of one and I stayed with my great grandmother. And so I was two and she said I was too much to handle. Um, and then, uh, after the age of two, I moved with my grandparents and I mean, it was, it was great. <laughs> like it, it was great. And it was really, you know, my mom, you know, she was in a, a different city, uh, which is about three hours away. That's where she, her hometown. And so she, of course, came on the weekends and, you know, I spent the entire summer there every summer. So, you know, I still had that relationship, but uh, staying with my grandparents just to kind of lighten her load. So she had a lot of support. All of my grandparents were living, including great grandparents when I was born. So that was a great, you know, just a great pillow of support for her. Um, And it worked out. And I'm really thankful for that because I was able to grow up around them and, you know, just kind of learn their ways and learn how to cook certain things and, you know, just learn about like what we did back in the day. So it was really cool. It was a really good experience. When you say great grandparents, how old did your great great grandparents live to? Or I mean, was everybody cranking (laughs) them out at 20? What was what was happening? (laughs) Um, So let's see. My dad's mother her mother had her at 16, so she was really young. Um, and then my, let's see, my mom's mom's mom, um, she passed when I was seven, but she was 101. Uh, so, yeah, so some of these people were either really older or they were, like, right at retirement age. So, like, I had, like, a really like one of my great grandparents was like right at retirement. And the other one was like, uh, like 90. So yeah. So I kind of had a kind of big, big gap, but yeah. So, okay. I, because anybody who was listening to was listening to uh, all the episodes knows that one of my goals is to live to a hundred. What did oh. you learn from your great grandparents about longevity, living life, uh, that you could share with the audience? Um, so I think like both of my great grandmothers, cause my great grandfathers, uh, one passed. So I think when I was born and the other one, um, he passed as well. Like my mom said, like maybe a year or two before I was born. So I really had my great grandmoms. Um, actually all of my great grandmoms were still alive. Um, and so I think the biggest thing for me that they all had in common was that, they set boundaries like they said, like when you walked in the room, they had it set like you knew how to respect them. They didn't care how you felt. They didn't care if you got mad. They didn't care if you didn't agree. It was like, look, I am setting boundaries for me. 
if you don't like it, I mean, that's fine. I still love you. However, this is just not, we're not going to do this. And I saw that, um, especially with my dad's grandmother. Um, and she would go toe to toe with him. You know, she would be like, hey, 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 like, wait a minute. Like, we raised her. Like, you weren't here. You know, like, you can't come in and, and try to give rules and try to be a dictator when you haven't been around. Yes, she is your child. However, we are what she knows, what she knows. And so I remember that I, I was about 11 years old and I remember that conversation to this day. And so I think it was important for me to see that. And she still loved him. Like It was no love loss. Um, he was kind of angry, <laughs> but, you know, she was just like, you know, it is what it is. And so I think, you know, seeing her and and even my, my mom's grandmother, like her just setting that tone and being like, hey, I'm not tolerating it. Like, this is what it's going to be. We're going to set this tone and that's it. Um, and I think they really showed me, you know, like setting boundaries. And of course, you know, how we talk in our, you know, in our culture is, you know, they were really bossy, but no, they weren't bossy. They were setting boundaries. They were letting you know, you're going to respect me. I deserve respect. I'm worthy of respect and I'm going to get it. And if you don't like that, that's perfectly okay with me. I still love you. You can go about your way and I can go mine. Um, and I think that was really important. And even though I, I have struggled with that, it's something that I still reflect on it. I still joke about my great grandmother, you know, you know, just having that slick mouth and just, you know, setting that boundary and, you know, still being loving, still being like, hey, I cook dinner. You want to come over and grab a plate? But letting you know, like, I'm not going to tolerate it. You're not going to disrespect me. It's just it is what it is. And so I think that was important for me to watch, especially with them being older um, and just them setting the tone, but still showing that love. Like those things can can still exist. Like you can still you know, be stern, but you can still be caring. Those things can exist. Um, and that's a part of their mental health. And I think really that's why they lived so long. That's why they, I was able to say, you know, Hey, they passed when I was in my twenties. Uh, of course my mom's gr- uh, grandmother passed when I was seven, but you know, my dad's grandmother lived till and I was in my twenties. So, you know, I was able to see her and, and she still lived that life until the day she died. It was like, Hey, I'm sending this this boundary and either you can get with it or, you know, <laughs> you can kind of get gone. Uh, but I think it was really important and it just helped me see like eat as now as I continue to heal that, you know, stress, the, the cliche saying is stress can kill you and it really can. Um, and so you have to take care of yourself. Like you have to be here. You want to see your grandchildren, you know, you want to see your great grands, you want to see, you know, your family be successful. Then your goal is to be here. And so what are things that are going, that are going to keep you here? What are things that are going to keep you to longevity? You know, physical health is a huge, I mean, it's very important. You know, what you put in your body is extremely important, but it's also about the negative thoughts you put into your body. It's also the thoughts of other people that you put into your mind and so those things also affect us as well and I think that if we can kind of remember that and keep that connection of it's not just what we eat but it's really how we take care of our mind how we massage our brain you know how we keep our mind you know active and you know challenge our mind and keep it up to this best ability Uh, that's extremely important so I think that was like that was their thing. Like, hey, I'm not I'm not here for it. Either you're gonna take it or you're gonna leave it. 
I, I, I love that. You know, my mom said the same thing. I was asking her because my mom's from Belize. My dad's from Alabama. And my mom is definitely, my dad passed away, but my mom definitely going to live to be a 1,000. Uh, <laughs> she's 69, and she beat COVID with ginger ale and, and, and like a hot toddy or something uh, wow. recently. And I, I, I'm exaggerating, but she, she, she's a fighter, but she did, uh, she did beat COVID. Um, the, but when I asked her about uh, race and dealing with racism, because she used to work at a bank, uh, in Chicago for about 30 years. And I'm like a black woman at a bank in Chicago. Uh, she had to experience some things. And, and, and when I look back, she never talked to us about race. It was always about respect, about I look you in the eye, you look me in the eye. And, and if, if you can't do that, then I, I don't want nothing to do with you. So she, she was, for her, it was never about color or uh, how much money you made or, or where you're from. It was always about the respect. And, you know, I, I swear people meet my mom and, and she has the life of a, of a nine-year-old. She just always got a little bouncer in her step uh, with a quick laugh and a quick smile. So there's something to be said about setting boundaries in your life and, and, and feeling empowered enough to say no to things. So I appreciate you sharing that. What... Uh, can you define bipolar too? Because we've talked, I've had people on a podcast who've talked about bipolar one, uh, but I, I don't know if I've had anybody with bipolar two. Can you define that for us? Absolutely. So um, bipolar uh, one disorder, I'm going to talk about that a bit, is one that we see a lot, right? Um, and so I always talk about this as like the cool hip things, um, the cool hip mental illnesses. You know, everybody likes to talk about anxiety because it's like the cool one to have. It's not so scary. Uh, depression, of course, people can relate to it. Um, and so when you think about bipolar one disorder, you see a lot of these characters on television, right? You know, you're Andre Lyon. Um, you see, you know, a lot of these characters, uh, Aunt Jackie. And, you know, you see these characters who have bipolar disorder type one, you know, on whatever TV show um, that, that we watch. Um, and so these are the people who experience mania, right? So mania, what it may look like. Um, and so mania may look like overspending money, right? But not overspending, you know, anyone can overspend, but this is really about having no ability to control the impulse. You know, it's, I went and bought a yacht and I live in Kansas, you know, and I, I blew, you know, my entire life savings and, and went and like bought part of the Grand Canyon. We're talking really, you know, just really out there purchases. Of course, um, more common things that you kind of hear about with bipolar disorder type one or, you know, over-sexualizing, of course, hyper-sexualizing. Um, and so that means, you know, going out and not being able to make that sound judgment decision, right? Going out, meeting people and, and having, you know, sex with them and not really caring about the recourse, not really caring about, you know, possibility of being pregnant or possibility of getting an STD, you know, just kind of kind of that behavior. Bipolar disorder type two, however, 
they call people with this disorder the functioning bipolar disorder people. So, and what that means really is we are able to kind of put on that actor face. We're able to go out, we're able to work. You know, we, you know, we may not be hospitalized as much. We are able just to kind of live that day-to-day life, right? So what we experience is hypomania. And so the difference between that manic episode and a hypomanic episode is you get that elevated rush, right? But it's not as intense to the point that, you know, you may go out and make that large purchase. You may have those racing thoughts. You may experience, you know, that psychosis or you may experience that delusion. We may not get to that. Now you can, it is possible. However, it's not common for someone with bipolar disorder type two to get to that. But we can still experience the rage. We still can have rage episodes, right? We can still can have those elevated feelings. The difference with us is, We do have lows, but it's not as depressive as the type one. So we'll experience kind of low mood, but ours kind of lasts a little bit longer. So we'll have a uh, depressive low mood for about two months. Um, And and when I say, you know, I like to tell people I'm not exaggerating. Literally 60 days, Monday through Sunday, two months straight of depressive episode. Um, And so they kind of categorize us as, We really don't get hospitalized for a hypomanic episode. We're more likely to get hospitalized for a depressive episode. Um, And so we don't kind of get those really intense feelings, but they're still there. It's possible. You know, I've had depressive episodes that have led me to the hospital to be hospitalized before multiple on multiple occasions. I've also experienced hypomania before. I've also been delivered delusional before. So it it really depends. Each person is kind of different, but how they kind of like categorize it as far as like in the mental health field is that we are kind of able to function. uh, We're able to live our day-to-day life. uh, We're kind of able to push through, you know, we may still be depressed, but it's not so intense that we can't get out the bed. We may feel a little bit of hypomania, but it's not so intense that we break the bank. So we're kind of right in the middle. Um, and so, yeah, it's it's still, you know, a mental illness is a mental illness and it still affects our daily life. Right. Um, and so it has definitely affected me um, in many ways. Um, like I said, more so I've had more depressive episodes uh, with it and mine can get really intense. So I deal with like chronic depression. So my depression is consistent every single day. I kind of feel it every single day. It's hard for me to get out and kind of for me to get out of a depressive episode, I kind of have to go to the hospital. Now, when you say, uh, all right, there's a lot I want to unpack, uh, unpack first. Uh, thank you for sharing that and clearing that up. Uh, secondly, you, you mentioned that you were in there for an attempt. What, what saved you, uh, from that attempt? Did it, I mean, without telling us how you attempted, uh, was it somebody found you? Did did it just not uh, go through for whatever? Or what saved you? Um, so the first time I ever even experienced a suicidal thought or ideation was at the age of 12. Um, and so I would have these thoughts of not wanting to be here. You know, I'm tired. I just want to go to sleep. I just really don't want to wake up. Um, and so having that experience and, and you know, thinking in my mind, well, you know, NyQuil puts you to sleep if I drink a whole bottle. 
you know, then I won't wake up at all. Um, so that was kind of my initial, you know, thought process at 12. As I got older um, and, and in college, and typically you kind of see uh, the average age for someone to start experiencing those like depressive, I mean, excuse me, those bipolar disorder symptoms are around the ages of about 19 to 25. Um, and so I'm kind of textbook right around the age of 19 is when everything really started to change. Uh, and my first time going as a teenager, you know, more so as an adult, um, I was uh, the age of 20. And so what happened with that time is, I mean, I was really depressed. I felt depressed. I kind of tried to move through it. I tried to drink it away. I tried to sleep it away, kind of like Salon said. Um, I tried to shop it away. I tried to do everything that I thought would work to just kind of go through each day. Um, I'm the type of person as well that kind of, you know, puts on that happy face and kind of act my way through it. I'm the life of the party and it became too much. Um, and so one night I just could not get my thoughts under control. Um, just racing suicidal thoughts. I mean, just I tried to go to sleep. The thoughts were really negative, and I was like, "This is not going to work." Um, I'm also someone who deals with uh, self harm, um, and so I was doing a lot of self harm then. And that night in particular, I could feel myself not being able to stop. Um, and so I, I got on the phone and I called who is now my ex husband. He he and I actually were really good friends. Um, at the time, we had known each other for years, and I called him, and I was like, I just need you to come over, and he was like, okay, and it was like three in the morning, um, and so, yeah, he came over, and he was like, hey, what's up? Like, what's wrong? And I wouldn't talk. Um, I was crying, hysterical. I wouldn't say anything. He was, you know, of course, asking kind of those fact-finding questions, and I was just, I wouldn't say anything. He was like, I don't know what to do. You keep crying. I'm taking you to the hospital. Um, and so initially that that first experience as a as an older, you know, young adult, um, it was actually him who took me. Um, and so when, even when I got to the hospital, I wouldn't talk. Um, and, you know, I showed her myself harm wounds and, you know, they kind of kept me. Uh, and then fast forward. Of course, I went again uh, in 2011. And at this time, I had just had my son uh, a few months before. Um, and so. I went there and uh, well, I, I was home and it was kind of that same thing. And I called a friend. I did phone a friend who I, I trusted. And I had, you know, we both have kind of some mental health issues. Um, and I told her, I was like, I just don't want to be here. I need you to stay on the phone. So she said, OK, we talked for about three hours. And I was like, I think I feel better. I can go to sleep. And I, I didn't. I got off the phone and it got worse. Um, and I said, you know what? I need, you know, I need to go. Um, and so I got in my, I called her and I was like, Hey, I'm going to the hospital. Um, I was married at the time. I was like, you can call him and let him know he's at work. I was like, I have to go now. I can't wait. Um, and so I went, I drove myself to the hospital and I was like, you know, Hey, I don't want to go home cause I don't want to live. And she was like, all right. And so they, you know, admitted me of course. Um, and so that time was really different from the first time. The first time I just knew that if it was kind of that same feeling of like, if I stay home, I know I'm not going to make it. Um, I didn't know how to say it then. I was really afraid. It was a lot of stigma around it. So I was really scared that people would find out. Um, but the second time I went, 
course I had a husband, I had a son, um, and I really thought about them. You know, I, you know, my thought process was my husband can't walk in and find me dead. He, he can't be the person to explain this to my son. Um, and so I was like, there's, you know, the only option, you know what the only option is and that's to go get help. Um, and so I, yeah, I voluntarily, uh, took myself, um, and I stayed there for 30 days. Um, and you know, it was, really important. And I think that kind of gave me some power to, to show me like, you know, like you have power and you can manage this, you can do this. Um, and so, yeah, um, it, it, you know, those, like I said, they, they were two different times and two different times in my life and two different ages, but yeah, the both times it was just kind of like, you know, where this is leading. And it, it was just that feeling something kind of hit me and said, you, you know, where this is going, what, you know, what are you going to do? And, you know, I just, I just, both times I just decided I needed, I needed to do what I needed to do. And that's kind of how I got help. Well, I appreciate you getting help. But my question is, when I hear you say you hospitalized yourself for 30 days, how much did that cost? Because I was in the <laughs> hospital for, for 30 minutes and that was about $10,000. What, <laughs> what kind of insurance plan do you have that, that you was like, yeah, I'm a volunteer. Terribly. I mean, the, the the cotton swab was twenty dollars a piece. What? Who are you with? What kind of? Did, so <laughs> she got a social. So the, you went. You went in London. You did you fly? You flew to. You went to Thailand. No. Uh, so actually, the first time I went, I was on my mom's insurance, um, and she worked for the state of Georgia. So you know, she had really good insurance. Um, and so that's you know, and I was only there three days. Um, and those three days at that age, I did not want to be there. So my goal was to get out. Right. So when I first went and I wouldn't talk, you know, they told me if you don't talk, you don't leave. You'll be, we'll keep you here until you talk. Um, and they kind of shock scared me, um, which is a whole nother conversation for a whole nother day. Um, and it was, and I still didn't talk. Uh, and, and by day two, I was like, I don't want to be here anymore. Um, and it's a lot of reasons behind that, but, you know, and so day three, I was like, I got to go. So I talked, um, and I left, I kind of lied, really. I lied. I'm like, I feel better. Just let me go home. <laughs> so the second time though, <laughs> um, I was, where was I working? I was working. Oh my gosh. I was working. Um, and I had United healthcare and I didn't even care. I didn't call the insurance. I didn't, I just didn't, I was like, I just want to live. I don't care. Like, I don't care. Um, and I went and I got a bill for 28,000. Um, so that lets you know kind of how much my insurance company paid because 28,000, even though that sounds like a lot, uh, that was still, you know, like very much less than what the entire bill was for. It was like a couple hundred thousand. Um, and so, yeah, I, um, we actually sent it back. Uh, you know, I worked with mental health, a mental health organization called DBSA. Um, and so, and that's depression, bipolar, schizophrenia Alliance. Um, and they actually worked with me and, and showed me how to like get it removed and get it paid for. Um, and so I worked with them, they wrote up their little letter, uh, you know, saying, you know, like this was a life or death. This was a crisis. This was an emergency. She does not have the, you know, kind of did that thing. 
Um, and the next bill I got was $700. And so I paid it off. Um, and so with that, with, with that organization's help, that was really the way I was able to pay it off. But yeah, you know, at the time, man, I didn't care. I was like, I just got to live. Like you can build me a million dollars. Like I, I got to live. So yeah, it, it was very pricey. Um, the cost, I mean, three days, I think three days, I'm trying to remember. I think even those three days are like, 10 grand like it, it just three days alone was like extremely high um and those i mean it's it's pretty bad yeah it's pretty bad and you know that's that really leads to like the you know access to treatment um and that's why a lot of people don't go get help is because financially they can't afford it um and i mean you know it if you think you know and everybody thinks different right me i was like i just want to live i don't care like forget my credit like i just gotta live um and some people think you know well i can't just say forget my credit you know i have to i'm <coughs> sorry i have to you know I, I gotta pay bills i gotta go to work i can't have this on my credit i, I want to buy a house um and so they choose not to go um and there are organizations where you can get help but unfortunately there are no organizations to get help, you know, for an emergency response for a crisis. <laughs> Sorry. No, I I just want to, first of all, thank you, one, for uh, fighting to still be here. And, and that, just that idea of, like, I just got to live. And also for sharing the details. Because I think what happens with a lot of people who uh, make it through a mental health crisis or situation is that, you know, we don't get into the details of it. And it's in the details that could really save people's lives. I mean, I, I, I this is, you know, I'm on episode, uh, like, this is, it'll be like 205 or 10 or something like that. And, and I've had people talk about being hospitalized, but you're the first person to talk about this organization, DBSA, uh, which is Depression and uh, Bipolar Support Alliance, which helped you take a bill that was $28,000 down to $700. I mean, most people don't even know that a, a, the DBSA exists. I didn't know until I talked to you and that they can do that kind of work and that you can knock off 99% of your bill through, uh, you know, whatever grants or loans or, or whatever they found for you. So I really appreciate you sharing the details of that journey. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's really important, um, you know, to talk about those things. And that's why I say, you know, sharing our story is so important. Doing this work is so important. Like it's podcasts and YouTube and videos and writing books and blogs. Like this helps other people know that, okay, if if people feel like I have a resource, right? If they feel like, <clears throat> sorry, I'm getting strangled, but if they feel like they have a resource, if they feel like, because finances make people feel like I don't have an option. I don't have a job. I don't have any money. I have kids. I got to feed people. I have to eat. I got to pay bills. I don't have an option. And so you are less likely to go seek help. And I mean, that's been statistically proven. Like, I'm not just coming up with this like out of thin air. This has statistically been proven as a blockage, as a barrier to access of treatment 
for all people, but especially for Black, Latino, Native, you know, people of color, minorities, Indigenous people, you know, we just don't have the financial, you know, uh, support to do that. Um, and so when you have these organizations that are there that do these grants, that do the grant work and can can advocate for you, you know, it's like you have to share Like, who would I be to hold that information in, you know? I, you know, we can't be selfish. We we can't say Black Lives Matter. We can't say I want everybody to live. I can't say that everybody's important. If I'm my own oh, novel, I'm not going to tell you about DBSA. Mm-mm. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, I can't say that. Um, And so it's really important for me to, like, get these things out and share it. And, you know, I'm, that's the type of person I am. I am very numbers related, very data, very statistical. I like to see numbers. Um, I'm actually in school right now. Again, I'm going back to school. Um, and so I'm actually a bio major, biology major with a minor in applied mathematics. So numbers are really important to me. Data is really important to me. Statistics are really important to me because we have to see the numbers. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's important that we share these things and these opportunities because that gives people the empowerment they need to say, wow, I can go get help. There are so many ways to get discounts on medication. It's not even funny. Like, like I can tell you so many ways to like find discounts for medication. So many ways. I help my mom get medication. Her medicine is like 128, and it's for it's like for eye drops, but it's like really high. It's like I think like 128 a month, and I got it down to 30 bucks. So you know, like when you know these things. That makes people feel empowered, like, wow, I have some control over my healing. And that's what it's really about. I know for me, just, you know, I know I'm kind of rambling, but for me, like, once I realized, like, I had control over my healing, that I was in control and it wasn't the anxiety and it wasn't the PTSD and it wasn't the bipolar disorder that was in control. It wasn't the trauma. It wasn't the bullying. It wasn't the, you know, sexual assault survival. Like it was none of those things that were control. It was me who was in control. Things shifted. Like once I started to see that, I was like, wow, like I can, I can really do that. You know, like I can do this, like these, and this is how I can do it. And so now because I have these resources and I have these tools, I am more apt to go get help. And and not to say like I have risen above and somehow I'm like better than everybody because no, I still fall short. I still have times where I get in depressive episodes and experience hypomania, but I have the tools now. And so I have those little sticky notes and those little notebooks and I kind of have those little things like, oh yeah, girl, you know, you can call DBSA. Oh, there is NAMI. You can utilize NAMI. You know, there's the Love Land Foundation. They're paying for black women to go to therapy. There's Black Men Heal. Your, your cousin, he needs some therapy. Oh, they're doing free therapy sessions. So, you know, when you have those tools and you can just kind of reach in that back pocket and say, girl, here you go. Boy, here you go. You know, it's, it empowers people. It really, it really gives people a sense of control, and that's really important to me. So I try to share it as much as I can. I'm sorry for rambling. <laughs> no, I, I, it's not to me. It's not rambling. It's passion, and I, I love when people come on here and they're passionate about what they're doing, about what they believe, about what their values are, and what their mission and purpose is. And I think that uh, it's a shame that we live in a society that make people feel self conscious about being passionate. You know, I was just in Peru and, uh, you know, South Americans are passionate and, uh, uh, you know, uh, other places in the world are passionate. And in America, we try to be stoic and, and, and act like we're unaffected when, and, and that's, it, you know, I, I feel like that is one of the culprits of our, 
of why mental illness seems to run rampant uh, amongst our society is that we try to act like everything's cool when it's not, when we're, we're paddling like ducks beneath the water. So I appreciate mm -hmm. your passion and sharing that with us. Um, so, I, but I, and also, <laughs> I want to know what's on those sticky notes. <laughs> I want to know what you what you got up on the mirrors in the bathroom and and what's on your refrigerator. <laughs> Just share. You have to share so, all of them, but but share share a couple with us. You know, let us know. Yeah. So I am a avid planner. Um, so the number one tip and resource and advice I give people is to create a routine. Understand that a routine and a plan is different. So a plan is something where you sit down and say, at 5 p.m., I'm going to eat applesauce. At 6 p.m., I'm going to do a podcast. That's a plan, right? You plan that out. A routine is something you do as a habit. It's just something you do daily. Routinely, you know, you wake up, you go use the bathroom, you brush your teeth. That's your routine. That's just kind of, and you do it. You don't even realize you do it. So for me, routines work. My life has to be very routine. It has to be get up, use the bathroom, get a drink of water, brush your teeth, you know, check your email, whatever, you know, it, I kind of have to do that every single day. Um, and so that's really important. So on my sticky notes, I have my routine um, and I can choose and I made it easy for me. Like I've listed like things I like to do in the morning. I love drinking tea. I love listening to podcasts. Uh, I'm a avid podcast, isn't it? Like, like it's on and popping, but I will like, so, you know, I have a list of things that I like to do. So like that's on, on a sticky note. Then of course I have affirmations on a sticky note. Now my affirmations used to be really negative. So my advice to people is to be really careful. Do not put sticky notes. I, I'll give you an example. One of mine is like, one of mine was like, you deserve what you got. Remember how mean you were to so-and-so and so? Yeah, that was literally an affirmation I had. So let's not be a negative affirmation. You got to be affirming and positive. Um, so I try to put affirmations to kind of remind myself, like, you got this, you know, just kind of like you got this, like things are going to happen. Things are going to go in plan, but everything is good. You're not throwing off course. You're great. Just keep on moving. Um, and so I try to keep affirmations. And then, of course, because of the work that I do, I have even I have digital sticky notes as well. So like right now, my laptop is up and I actually have the sticky notes that come like on my laptop I have them, I create, I told you I'm like a planner out of this world. So I have created a um, a background for my laptop <laughs> that stays up at all times, but I put sticky notes up as well. So like I have sticky notes for like mental health organizations, mental health organizations that give out free, um, that uh, give out free therapy sessions. I have you know, just information about different websites. And so I keep that. So if somebody asks me, boom, I can just kind of like look like, oh yeah, so-and-so-and-so is, you know, has this, you know, program going on right now and it's lasting through the summertime, like go get this free money. Um, and so that's, but that's really important to me. I love to help people. People always message me and I'm like, girl, do you know where I can get like some $5 headphones? And I'm like, you know what? I saw this coupon five months ago on Walmart. It's still good. It's on this one. Like, but I like to do that. Like if I can help somebody feel empowered, like that makes me, that really does make me feel good. So sticky notes empower me. <laughs> I'll say that. 
I remember a friend of mine, uh, she had sticky notes all over the place, and it was more geared towards studying, but it made me realize the power of sticky notes. Uh, uh, it, and But I, I find that they don't make them as sticky as they used to. They keep, they keep falling off, so I like that idea of a virtual sticky note. But also sometimes I'll take a dry erase marker and just write on my bathroom mirror uh, yes. my affirmations. But then... You know, I'd be taking hot showers, so I get out and it's all droopy, look like red rum, <laughs> all up in the bedroom, <laughs> all up in the bathroom. So, uh, so I'm constantly playing with it. My girl trying to get me to make a, a vision board, and I'm thinking, you know, that that might be the thing right there. So it, it's like, however, however you want to, however you want to create those affirmations. But I, I like you clearing up the the, the routine versus uh, plan for us. What else is? Uh, part of your uh, uh, way of consciously coping uh, in terms of you have the sticky notes, you have your friends to call, you have your your external resources. Um, I, I, I actually, in terms of being in a relationship, how have you communicated your needs to your spouse? So, um, I, of course, you know, I'm, like I said, I am single now. I'm divorced. (laughs) So no, it's cool. Um, and so that's actually, I'm glad you brought that up. That is actually something I really struggle with. Um, that is one part of my life that I feel as though my mental health is a barrier. Um, and that's just me. And that's something, you know, that I am consciously working on. But what I will say is that so I am back in therapy. I started going back to therapy this year. So that has really worked for me. And we talk a lot about what does things look like for me. Um, and so one of the things um, initially when I went to therapy, she said, why don't you let people love you? And I was like, what do you what do you mean? Like, what do you mean? I don't let people like, what are you talking about? Like, I let, like you know, of course, I got defensive. And so after I thought about it, I was like, she's so right. Like, I really don't let people in. I don't let people love me. Like, I'm like, no, I got it. I don't need you. Um, And so, you know, we talked about, you know, what does being in a relationship look like for you? You know, not, don't think of it as for you and you have a mental illness. What does it just, you know, what does it look like for you? She's like, you are not your mental illness. You are Lindsay. Don't think about it in in that box of, well, I have a mental illness. So now I have to think, no, you don't. What does it look like for you? Um, And so I just think, you know, going back into a a new relationship, um, I just I'm kind of prepared. I've learned a lot. Um, I think now because I'm setting boundaries and I think that's the biggest thing for me um, is like the next relationship would be, of course, to set boundaries um, and not being afraid of who I am and what I like. Um, A lot of because of the bullying when I was in middle school, just to kind of bring it back around. I don't really know who I am. I don't really know what I like because I've tried so long to be like everyone else. I tried to be the wife like I thought I had to be. I tried to be the girlfriend that I thought a man wanted me to be and what I thought he wanted and what I thought he needed. And so now I kind of look at more of my perspective, like, what do I want? What do I need? What do I like? You know, what empowers me? What makes me feel good? You know, do I want, you know, uh, my grandmother taught me, you know, this cute story about like when she started working in uh, the education field that women would ask her, well, how did you get your husband to, to bring you flowers and how do you get him to bring you gifts for your birthday? And like, how, how do you get him to do that? 
And she's like, I tell him, I want to give for my birthday and I want you to bring it to my school. <laughs> and so like, at first, of course, I was young and I laughed. I was like, oh, that's so mean. You bossing him around. And what I learned, I'm like, no, she's not. She's telling him, like, this is what I like. This is what, you know, this is this is something I like. It makes me feel good when you do these things. Um, and so I, I kind of just learned that. Um, and I think, like I said, looking out to the future and just kind of, you know, getting learning who I am and being proud of who I am. I think that's really something I'm going to focus on is just setting those boundaries, being myself and being comfortable with myself and being my full self, like being all of me, not being 90 percent because I'm afraid the other five percent is going to deter someone away. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's really important. Um, in the past, I haven't done that. So I'm looking for I'm actually looking forward to dating again. I wasn't, you know, this is more recent. And I was like, I'm never going to date again, ever. I'm a die cat lady. I don't even like cats. But, <laughs> you know, um, now I'm more like, huh, I'm kind of hopeful, like, I'm kind of ready to date again. I, I, I think I can do this, you know, and, and that's kind of where I am. So, yeah. I, I appreciate you sharing that. And I think one of the, because I also struggle with uh, setting boundaries. And I, I grew up uh, in a similar situation where, uh, you know, I started off at a, a black public school and then I went to an all white Catholic school and I was, I'm neither white nor Catholic. So, uh, but I, I wasn't bullied, but I just, you know, in terms of, uh, feeling completely connected. I also didn't feel that um, also. But but I will say to this day, some of the people from my elementary school are still friends. And I had an overall great experience there. But there was just, uh, you know, it just wasn't like what it was at the public school. So I, I understand that and, and not knowing quite who you are because you just want to fit in and, uh, and, and tend to everybody else's needs. Um, but, you know, one of the things that's helped me is um, I realized one of my barriers to setting boundaries has been the idea that if I say I want this or I want that or I don't want this, or I don't want that, that I'm going to be held to that forever when, you know, we're constantly changing, evolving um, and uh, adjusting. And so to to recognize that I can change my mind, it's OK to say, hey, you know what, that's. Like, you know, like your, your, your friend, like she loved flowers, but maybe uh, a, a year later, two years later, she don't want, she don't like flowers or she don't like the same type of flowers. And it's okay to switch it up. And it doesn't make people, uh, it doesn't make you wishy-washy and it doesn't make you a hypocrite for changing our minds. I think a lot of us also don't want to be caught changing our minds. It's like, well, you said this yesterday. And it's like, yeah, that was yesterday. And a lot can happen in 24 hours in terms of mood, emotion, uh, information. So I think that as as we become more compassionate about uh, about being flexible with our thoughts and feelings and ideas, then uh, we start to see that other people can be as compass equally as compassionate uh, towards us also. So I appreciate you sharing that, Lindsay. Yeah, absolutely. Evolution is infinite. You know, it's it's ever growing, it's ever changing, um, and that's okay. Um, people evolve, we evolve, and that of course leads into forgiveness. Um, the I think people always want to be forgiven, but don't understand they need to forgive themselves. Um, and that is so important in the healing process. 
Um, and so that's a part of that evolution. You forgive yourself, then you give yourself the power and you allow yourself to understand that, you know, like I can change, I can grow, I can, you know, evolve, I can become greater and get more knowledge and, you know, it's okay. And and that's fine. Um, and so we, when we hold ourselves, like, like you said, kind of stuck to these these little four little walls and we hold ourselves in, you know, we're diminishing the opportunity to learn. I mean, it's important. We're diminishing our opportunity to figure out what we like and like things change, you know? Yeah. Are, are there any books uh, and they don't have to be mental health books, just books in general that, that you love that, uh, that you, you would gift to someone or that you have gifted to someone. Um, this, you know what, this must be like heaven sent. I just had a friend message me about two weeks ago (laughs) and asked me the same thing. Um, so my favorite book as an adult, because I have favorite books as a child too, but my favorite book as an adult is The Alchemist. This book is, I mean, I've read it five times. I'm currently on my fifth time reading it. And the reason I keep rereading it is as I mature, as I grow, as I evolve, the book means so much more to me. Um, and it's really this eloquently written story about this um, young sheep herder. And it's really about him like on this journey. So like, you got to read the book. I don't want to like give it all away, but he is on this journey. Um, he thinks this journey is one thing and he thinks this journey is like this one path. And pretty much as he goes through the book, he learns that like, the journey is ever changing and he learns, he meets so many people on his path in his life as he gets older. And by the time he gets to the end of the book, he's like, holy crap, I'm a different person. Like I'm a totally different person and it's okay. Like that's pretty much what he learns is like, holy crap, I have evolved from the first time I sat out on this journey. Now here I am. Look at me. Look how much I've changed. Look how much I evolved. Look how much I've learned. Look at all the patience I understand. Um, And so it's a great book. I would recommend it to a lot of people. It's not an easy read. A lot of people read it and love it, or a lot of people read it and hate it. Um, And so I would say reread it. Read it and take notes. Read it and highlight. Uh, so that's one of my favorite books, of course. Um, another one of my favorite books, I would say, would be, I don't know, there's so many. Um, that's really my favorite. I'm trying to think. Oh, you know what? It's a book, but I listen to audio version. So I love Brene, Dr. Brene Brown. She is amazing. Um, and so Call to Courage, uh, power of vulnerability, amazing books. Listen to the audio because it's way more powerful. She actually does the audio. And when I tell you, she breaks down and like strips you apart and like challenges everything you thought you knew about being vulnerable and having courage and having resilience. I mean, she breaks it way down. Um, so definitely, I would suggest listening to the audio version of that because she, I mean, Brene Brown is just awesome sauce. I love her. She's amazing. Um, and another one of my books, just for kicks, that I love. Um, I love any book by C.S. Lewis. Um, C.S. Lewis, of course, um, wrote The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Uh, so if you are into anything that's kind of fantasy, it's really good. If you kind of read it as an adult, you kind of see like it's pretty much a journey, a hero's journey. Um, and so, you know, the hero's journey is like, you know, he goes, they go out on a quest and they come up to like 
all these trials and tribulations and it's about how they grow and how they move through and fight. So it's really, really good. Um, so those are kind of three of my like favorite, but any book by Brene Brown is good. So you can read any book by her, but, um, her, my favorite of hers is like I said, the power of vulnerability and, um, call to courage. And then the alchemist and of course, um, the lion, the witch in the wardrobe. I love that. Spending 30, I want to backtrack just a little bit. Um, spending 30 days in a hospital and uh, with all the therapy, uh, what did you, strategies, tools, skills did you learn during that 30 days for someone? Because I have, I have listeners in Sri Lanka and Australia, uh, you know, in, in different parts of the world and, and who may not be able to get to a, a hospital for whatever reason. What are some of the, uh, we talked about the sticky notes and uh, having a routine, uh, what are some other stratagems that 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 you were gifted with uh, throughout all this, uh, uh, throughout all the therapy that you got? Yeah, um, <clears throat> so I'm gonna tell the truth. Uh, so in the hospital, um, the goal is to get you out of there. Um, so to be honest, the goal is not to really equip you with tools that you can kind of succeed. The goal is more so to get you stable enough that you don't hold a bed for someone else who may need it. Um, now you do go to therapy. You do do group sessions. You do. Well, not you do. I did music therapy, art therapy. We did those things. I would say maybe music and art therapy are really good tools. Of course, they do it in more like an educational way. Um, music therapy is more kind of like you listen to the song, you talk about how it makes you feel, you write it down. Uh, art therapy was like, hey, we're going to draw, you know, like, how do you feel today? Draw it. Or how do you feel when you think about your mom? Draw, you know, and so it's more like specific so they don't really kind of give you the tools to like function outside. They kind of just tell you, hey, great. When you leave here, you need to find a therapist. Um, so the best tools I've gotten, honestly, have been through my therapist and my psychiatrist. Um, my psychiatrist, the biggest thing that I can say that I have learned from my current um, therapist, not psychiatrist, sorry, my current therapist has been um, to ask myself, what would this look like for me? Um, so when I get in those negative thoughts, when I say I'm a horrible mom, I'm terrible because I have a mental illness and my son's life's going to be ruined and I have all these negative thoughts, she questions me to say, what does a perfect mom looks like? What would a, like, what is your, what is my ideal of a good mom? Write down those things. A good mom, you know, make sure her son has food. Have you done that? Yes. Great. A good mom, make sure her son has water. Have you done that? Yes. Great. You know, and so that kind of calls you to proactively go against those negative thoughts and to see yourself because you, you, it's kind of like walking in a fog. Like you kind of have like this, this, fog in front of your face and you kind of can't see the lights you kind of can't see anything around you and so doing this activity of what does that look like for you what does that look like gives you the opportunity to kind of go against the fog kind of move it out the way kind of keep driving and steering yourself into like oh wait a minute 
I am a good mom. You know, it's like, oh, wow, I really am a good mom. And I got this. Um, So I think that's a really good thing. And I do it all the time. I literally do it with via text messages. Like, no lie. I will literally have the phone in my hand and I will get really anxious. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, if I text this person, they are going to hate my hate me for the rest of their life. And I start typing and then I say, wait a minute, what am I trying to say? What does this con- what does this conversation look like for me? What do I want them to know? So I stop. Um, I think, you know, a lot of times we want to kind of rush through things like we don't really think we like, I got to get through it and get done. And so calling yourself to like slow down, to slow down your thoughts, to slow down your talking and just saying, what am I trying to convey? What do I want this person to know? What am I trying to say? What is the end goal? And it may seem a little tedious, but it really helps. Um, so that's definitely one thing um, that really works. Um, keeping a journal or a notebook or a sticky pad or a sticky notes near you at all times is also a good thing. So like keeping a notebook in your book bag or in your purse or in your car or next to your nightstand or in the kitchen. If you have them everywhere, anytime you get racing thoughts, anytime you get negative thoughts, anytime you have positive thoughts, write it down, get it out of your head. Um, the, The ideal is to get all of these like intrusive, invasive thoughts out of your mind onto some paper um, because you may not have access to your therapist at all time. Right. You, you, it may be five in the morning, your friend, all of your support group, your, all of your support uh, friends, all of your support in your family may be sleep. What are you going to do? Write it down. Then you can go back to it. So the ideal is if I get it on paper, I can come back to this. I can put it down, go to sleep, wake up. Now I can tackle this. Um, so definitely keeping like a notepad, sticky notes or something like that, you know, kind of near you at all times. Um, I always say take time for yourself. This is something that I just kind of learned through like just, you know, living life and dealing with my mental health. Um, take time for yourself. And that will literally look different for every single person. Take time for me looks like laying down, watching Golden Girls, eating some fruit. Like that's like, and I can do that for like hours, but that's time with myself. I, I literally am laughing out loud. Nobody's in the room with me and I've watched Golden Girls. I know a hundred times I actually have all the DVDs, but that's something that makes me feel good. So I do that and I don't blame myself for not doing anything on a Saturday except watching Golden Girls. Um, so taking that time for yourself and allowing yourself and giving yourself space is very, 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 very important um, those are, I'm trying to think, those are like three big things that, that really work for me and that have really helped just, you know, like I said, so I hate to use the terminology self-care It's so commercialized. It's so like, go to the spa, have a drink of wine with your friends, go out. So for me, I can't really drink alcohol like I want to because I have a mental illness and it does affect me. It does trigger me. I can't stay up late because I have bipolar disorder and I have to be on a strict sleeping plan. I kind of have to go to sleep at the same time every day to keep my mood regulated. So those things actually don't work. They actually work against me. Um, so self-care can look like whatever it needs to look like for you and your well-being. Um, and I think people need to remember that whatever it looks like for you, as long as it doesn't harm you or someone else, it's perfectly fine. It does not have to be a traditional, 
you know, way of uh, self-care. So those are kind of some things that, you know, just kind of work for me and that I've kind of learned going through therapy. Um, I think the, the notebook thing is something I actually learned from every therapist I've had and even my psychiatrist talked about it. So obviously it's important to get those thoughts out of your mind and onto paper. And if you need to visit those things, like revisit those things again, you definitely can. You can even take them to your therapist. So like if you journal and like, let's say you write down a lot of stuff and you go to therapy, like the next week, you can say, Hey, I wrote this stuff down. Like, can we talk about this? Because it's really bothering me. And I think we need to, we need to address it. Um, and that allows your therapist to see kind of where you've been thinking and where your mind's been. Um, and then that gives you opportunity to have someone because therapists are great at what co-regulating our emotions. That's what they really help us do. They help us co-regulate. Um, and then so you, if you can take those things to your therapist, then they can see, oh, wow, like this is where what you've been thinking. Let's address it together. We can work through this together. You don't have to do it alone. The whole point of all of these tools are to do it t- together, to do it not feeling like I have to do it all by myself and I have to do it all in one day. So that's kind of the goal that we're trying to get to is I don't have to do it alone. I don't have to do it all in one day. I don't have to do it all at this moment. It can be an over-processed time. I love it. And I, I thank you, Lindsay, for taking this time out to share with us. Is there anything that we haven't talked about that you feel like listeners should know in terms of helping them uh, cope with uh, their mental health or uh, uh, something that can improve their lives. You like I, more people should know about this, whatever that is. Um, what I would like to tell people, the last thing is there are a lot of grassroots um, organizations that have began. Um, if you are of color um, and you are looking for someone specific, you can definitely look out to organizations like the Loveland Foundation, um, Black Men Heal, Melanin and Mental Health, Depressed While Black, um, Beam, um, Healing Black Women. Um, there are so many you know, nonprofits who are literally giving money away for people to seek help. So if you are a person of color and you are struggling financially, and if that is your your, your barrier to your access to free, if that's the only thing that's holding you back from saying, wow, I really need a therapist as I just don't have this $25 to pay, these organizations are doing the work. They are creating, curating, they're getting grants, they're getting donations. They are out there. Um, Social media, all of them are like heavy on social media, Um, Instagram. A lot of them are on Twitter. And so, you know, you can even just Google, you know, organizations that help with free mental health services. Um, And and these organizations will definitely pop up Um, if you are not. Because most of these, you know, you specifically have to be a person of color. If you are not a person of color. And you do need those uh, those same type of support programs. There are other organizations like Project You're Okay. Um, there are organizations like NAMI, uh, DBSA, Mental Health America. And so these are larger organizations that are also doing the same work. And they also offer free programs. They offer peer-to-peer support programs. They offer scholarships. They do the work as well. So there are options for you. Um, there are a lot of websites that you can go to that kind of host all of these resources. So you kind of don't have to like do all the work and like search for days. So definitely just 
reach out and, and see and eat, you know, sometimes they close the scholarship, you know, maybe for the rest of the summer and they say, Hey, we've reached our max capacity. We don't have any more money, but we will have more money in December. Keep trying, keep trying. Um, and if that doesn't work, reach out to these therapists. A lot of them do sliding scales. A lot of them will work with you. They will literally put you on a payment plan. Like they'll be like, no, like, Oh, you don't have a job great. I'll charge you 50 bucks. You just pay me every two months. Like they will work with you. Um, so just ask, just ask them a simple question. If they say, I don't have anything, I can't help you out. That may just not be the therapist for you. Um, so yeah. Um, if your only access, your only downfall or not, excuse me, not downfall, your only barrier is access to funds these organizations are there. They are willing to help. They are more than happy. It's free money. They are giving it away. Um, so please do not feel like you cannot have the help and the healing that you deserve. You deserve to be healed. You deserve it. And no amount of money, it is no, there's no amount of money that is more important than your life. So reach out. These people are here. They are willing to do the work. Um, and that's all. I appreciate that. Uh, plug all your things. Where people will find you. Tell us about the Consciously Coping. Plug all of it. Uh, yeah. So, like I said, my name is Lindsay Anderson. You can find me hanging out on Instagram most of the time at uh, Consciously Coping. All of my handles are Consciously Coping. Instagram, on Facebook, is Consciously Coping. On Twitter, is Consciously Coping. You can find me on YouTube at Consciously Coping. If you need to get in contact with me, my DMs are always open. Yes, I go to sleep, but I will return your message. And of course, you can always email me at coping.consciously at gmail.com. So that's C-O-P-I-N-G dot C-O-N. S-C-I-O-U-S-L-Y at gmail.com. I am always there. I'm always on social media. Reach out to me. I'm pretty cool. I'm telling you, you can shoot me a DM any time of day, and I promise you I will find you any resource. If you need any help, if you're trying to find therapy, psychiatrist, anything, just shoot me a quick message, and I promise you I'll find what you're looking for. That's it. All right, and last question, Lindsay. Because uh, I always imagine there's one person listening in who may be on the precipice of ending their life. Before you kill yourself, what would you say to them, Lindsay? I would say, even though it seems that people are too busy, that people have a lot going on, that nobody has the time, that nobody's answering the phone, these people care about you. There are people who care about you, even people you don't know, even rooms where your name, where your face hasn't been seen. These people care about you. There is somebody somewhere that is willing to help you. They will be there for you. They will support you. They will give you resources. They will give you hugs. They will laugh, cry with you. They are there to support you and ensure that you get the help you need. So please, 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 please remember that somebody somewhere is willing to help you. And they're willing to help you not just because it's the right thing to do, because you deserve to heal. You deserve 
to heal. You deserve to live a life of happiness, peace, joy, bliss. You deserve a partnership. You deserve children. You deserve a job. You deserve a home. You deserve a car. You deserve anything and everything you want. You deserve it. And because of that, you are deserving to be here. And always remember you are worth it. You're you're loved. And and just, just remember, just remember that tomorrow when you get up, that'll be your new day. You have a whole new day to take that small baby step into changing your life. And it may not be easy. It may not be easy the first day. It may not be easy the second day. But every single day you get up, every single day you you reach out to someone, every single day you listen to that uplifting song, things are going to change. Things are going to get better. I love that, Lindsay Anderson. Thank you so much for sharing that. Thank you so much to listeners for tuning in. Remember, this podcast is not a substitute for you going to get help, for you calling a friend, for you reaching out, for you looking for a grant, for you asking for help, assistance, call it whatever you want to, a hookup, whatever makes you feel comfortable, reach out, speak up. It's the only way that uh, Lindsay Anderson was released from the hospital. So if you want to be released from your pain, you have to speak up. You have to say something to someone so that they can help you People are not mind readers. Give them the opportunity to know how you feel. You can go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching with yours truly. Let's get to tomorrow together. Thank you so much, Lindsay. You're welcome.